Hey guys, before we start the show, I just want to give a quick shout out to another podcast. Go check out Pacific War Podcast, week by week. Hosted by yours truly, Craig Watson, in association with Kings and Generals. Found on all podcast platforms, like Spotify. Give it a click. You'll like it. You are listening to the Pacific War Channel's podcast. If you wish to see the video version of these podcasts, go to the Pacific War Channel on YouTube. Well, hello there. Welcome back to the Pacific War Channel, where we cover the entire history of the Asia-Pacific War, 1937 to 1945, and all the major events that led up to it. Now, if you've not already done so, please hit that like and subscribe button, as it would mean a lot to this small channel, and it helps feed these little demon birds that are walking around on my set. This episode will be one of a four-part series on Asia during World War I. We got a taste of the action in China with our previous episode on the Battle of Tsingtao, and now it's time to learn about the whole story. Here is China during World War I. When World War I broke out, China remained neutral, and she was fragmented, financially chaotic, unstable politically, and militarily weak. Now, in a previous episode, we mentioned one of the major events that kicked off the start of World War I in Asia. That was the Siege of Tsingtao, in which Japan defeated the Germans and occupied the port city. China could do little to nothing about this. Yuan Shukai had secretly offered the British diplomat, John Jordan, 50,000 troops to retake Tsingtao from the Germans, but this was refused. Japan not only occupied Tsingtao, they occupied portions of Shandong province and built military railways in northeastern Shandong, appropriated Chinese telegraph facilities, post offices, and went as far as trafficking opium. They levied taxes on local Chinese inhabitants, requested labor, materials, and attempted to appoint over 40 Japanese custom officers. Now, Japan was not done with its violations of Chinese sovereignty. In 1915, Japan sought to officially keep its newly acquired conquered German territories in China and extend upon those it won during the First Sino-Japanese War and Russo-Japanese War. China had recently tossed off the yoke of the Qing Dynasty and had established the new Republic of China. It was also fragmented and vulnerable. Japan saw this as an opportunity to gain everything it wanted. On January 18, 1915, the Japanese minister in Peking Hikieki personally presented what came to be known as the 21 Demands to Yuan Shikai. The demands were divided into several groups, stipulating economic, territorial, diplomatic, and political influence. Group 1 confirmed Japan's recent seizure of the German-occupied territories and expanded upon the influence over railways, coasts, and major cities within Shandong province. Group 2 extended the leasehold over the South Manchurian Railway Zone for 99 years, and expanded Japan's sphere of influence in southern Manchuria and eastern Inner Mongolia. Group 3 gave Japan control of the Hanyiping Mining and Metallurgical Complex in central China, and Group 4 barred China from giving any further coastal or island concessions to foreign powers. Last, the most egregious, was Group 5, stipulating that China would hire Japanese advisors who would effectively control China's finance, police, capability to build railways, Buddhist temples, and schools. Japan would also gain control of Fujian. If the Chinese government fully accepted these demands, it would result in China being reduced to a vassal state, if not a colony, under Japan. Minister Hiki expected Yuan Shikai to maintain a strict secrecy about these demands, but soon word got out. 
the international community did not react as forcefully as China would have hoped. After all, the Entente powers were preoccupied fighting the central powers. Obviously, none of them were coming to China's aid. It was only the United States, which remained neutral at this point, who issued a formal diplomatic objection, stating it would not recognize any agreements that might contravene the open-door policy of 1899. The Japanese ignored this declaration, but the Genro intervened and deleted Group 5's demands from the document as these proved to be far too overbearing. On May 7, 1915, a new set of 13 demands was sent in the form of an ultimatum with a two-day deadline for a response. Yuan Shikai was competing with other warlords in China to become the de facto leader of the fractured country and was in no position to risk war with Japan. On May 8, 1915, Yuan Shikai accepted the 13 demands, and the final form was signed on May 25th. The reaction of the people was extremely negative towards Yuan Shikai, though it should be noted the Chinese government did its best to thwart most of the damage. They had stalled the process, leaked the demands to the international community, hoping for some intervention, and after helped protract negotiations seeking to affect Japanese domestic politics by mobilizing support for the general. Indeed, the results of the 13 demands were actually far more negative for Japan than positive without Group 5. The new treaty gave Japan little more than it already had in China. The demands hurt Japan's already bad relations with the United States and even dampened the relations with their closest ally, Britain, who saw Japan trying to become a protectorate over all of China. Of course, the outcry of the Chinese people towards Japan was highly negative and would contribute later to the May 4th movement of 1919. Now, we have already stated China remained neutral at the outbreak of World War I, but by 1916, certain nations were struggling to come up with new ways to win the war. British Minister John Jordan, after refusing Yuan Shikai's offer to retake Tsingtao, offered China the opportunity to join the Entente powers, provided that Japan and the other allies accepted her as a partner. Japan refused to allow Chinese soldiers to fight, hoping to secure her authority as the powerhouse in the East. While Chinese citizens were not allowed by the Chinese government to participate in the fighting, this did not stop them from other actions. In 1916, the French government approached China, asking to recruit its citizens for non-combatant use. A contract was agreed upon on May 14, 1916, supplying 50,000 laborers who would make their way to Marseille in July of 1916. This was followed up by Britain's War Committee in London, who formed the Chinese Labor Corps, with its main recruiting base established in Wei Highway on October the 31st, 1916. The first transport ship carried 1,088 laborers sailing from Wei Highway on January 18, 1917. The journey took three months. Each volunteer received an embarkment fee of 20 yuan, followed by 10 yuan a month paid to their families in China. By the end of the war, this would account for roughly $2.2 billion earned by Chinese laborers. As a result of German submarine attacks, Britain needed a safe route and shipped 84,000 Chinese laborers through Canada. This was done in absolute secrecy, as at the time Canada had the Discriminatory Chinese Immigration Act of 1885 and the Chinese Head Tax. Thus, they had boarded trains journeying 6,000 kilometers from Vancouver to Montreal, never leaving the train. As reported by the Halifax Herald in 1920, they were herded like so many cattles in cars forbidden to leave the train and guarded like criminals. It was a grueling experience to be sure. China began to ship thousands of men to Britain, France, and Russia. These non-combatants would repair tanks, assemble shells, transport supplies like munition, 
and dig trenches amongst many other things. They would work on average 10 hours a day, 7 days a week, and many had to work in military combat zones, often under fire. Most of these laborers came from Shandong province, who hoped their actions would allow China to regain complete control over the province upon winning the war. As mentioned, many of these Chinese laborers were sent to Russia. Chinese scholars estimate up to a possible 200,000 Chinese laborers worked in Russia. They worked in coal mines, factories, railways, carried ammunition, and dug trenches in the Eastern Front. Most of their recruitment was done in northeastern China by the private companies like Yisheng Company. There was a significant difference between Chinese laborers working in the West versus the East. In the West, Chinese laborers worked under government contracts of that of Britain and France, who managed them. In the East, the Russian government did not manage them, it was actually private merchants. This meant many Chinese in the East did not receive adequate sheltering, clothing, or food. Conditions were extremely harsh, and often Chinese laborers would simply be left on their own. Many of these laborers were employed to build a 1,044-kilometer railway linking St. Petersburg to the Newport and Murmansk. This meant they had to lay a line across frozen marshes, lakes, rocky terrains, and through countryside that was uninhabited and could supply nothing but timber. They worked 24 hours a day. In the cold, nights could reach negative 40 degrees Celsius, and many died of the extreme cold, lack of nutrition, and disease. With so many Chinese scattered about Russia, during the Russian Revolution, many joined the New Red Army. Many Chinese laborers truly sympathized with the Bolshevik cause, others simply joined the Red Army as a means to survive. Those who did join the Red Army often did so for food or the opportunity to get back home as the revolution left many stranded. Ren Huixian was China's first Bolshevik, and he was the commander of the Chinese Red Eagle Battalion. Estimates vary significantly, but it is estimated up to 40,000 Chinese laborers joined the Red Army fighting in multiple fronts like Poland, Belarus, Ukraine, the Caucasus, Volga, and Siberia. They had no attachment to Russia or its places, and thus, they were very useful as executioners, and many were used as shock troops, as no one expected to be attacked by Chinese. Roughly 140,000 Chinese laborers served on the Western Front during and after the war. 100 of these served in the British Chinese Labor Corps, 40,000 with the French, and hundreds of Chinese students served as translators. It should be noted that the Chinese government and many intellectuals saw the overseas work as an enormous opportunity for the Chinese youth to learn new technical skills and ingenuity which could be brought back to the homeland. Then on February the 17th, 1917, the French passenger ship SS Athos was sunk by the German U-boat SMU-65 off the coast of Malta. The ship was carrying 900 Chinese workers and 543 of them were tragically killed. The United States had recently severed diplomatic ties to Germany and as a result of its unrestricted submarine warfare pushed China to do the same. China severed diplomatic ties with Germany in March. The United States further advised China that if they wished to be brought to the peace agreements, China should declare war on Germany. Thus, China took this advice and declared war on the Central Powers on August 14, 1917. China proceeded to take back the remaining concessions of Germany and Austro-Hungary in Tianjin and Hankou. The Chinese government also cancelled reparation payments to Germany and Austro-Hungary that had been lingering since the Boxer Rebellion. The Chinese government considered sending a token combat force into the Western Front, but never ended up doing so. China did, however, send 2,300 troops to Vladivostok in August of 1918 to protect Chinese interests during the Siberian intervention. 
these Chinese forces fought against the Bolsheviks and Cossacks. The Chinese forces eventually occupied Outer Mongolia and Tuva. When the war came to an end, many of the Chinese laborers remained employed to recover bodies of dead soldiers, clear mines, and refill miles of trenches they had dug themselves. Each Chinese laborer was identified by a reference number and were shipped home eventually. Around 5 to 7,000 stayed in France, forming the nucleus of a later Chinese community in Paris. This also occurred in many other cities like London. Between December 1918 and September 1920, most Chinese laborers were shipped home. It is estimated around 2,000 Chinese laborers died during the war, many from the 1918 flu pandemic. But many Chinese scholars argue the total could be as high as 20,000. When Germany declared its surrender on November the 11th, 1918, expectations in China were quite high. When the news reached China, the government immediately declared a three-day national holiday to commence upon the armistice. China achieved its primary goal, that being granted a seat at the post-war peace conference. China was given two seats as they had not supplied any combat troops. The Chinese delegation was led by Lu Tsengxiang, who was accompanied by Wellington Ko and Cao Rulin. Japan, on the other hand, was given five seats as they had contributed combat troops. Britain and France had promised Japan it could keep the holdings it acquired during the war, which included the former German holdings. In Article 156 of the Treaty of Versailles, the official transfer of Shandong Peninsula was given to the Empire of Japan rather than being returned to China. China denounced this transfer, stating Shandong was the birthplace of Confucius, the greatest Chinese philosopher, and it would be on par to Christians conceding Jerusalem. China demanded Shandong Peninsula be returned to China, an abolition of all privileges afforded to foreign powers in China, such as extraterritoriality, and to cancel the 13 demands with the Japanese government. The Western powers refused all of China's demands and dismissed them. As a result, Wellington Co. refused to sign the Treaty of Versailles in protest. The backlash towards the Treaty of Versailles in China was immense. In retaliation for the Chinese government's weak response and the actions of the Western powers, students all over China protested against the government's decision to allow Japan to retain the territories in Shandong province. These student demonstrations sparked a nationwide protest and spurred an incredible upsurge in Chinese nationalism. This event became known as the May 4th Movement. The movement increasingly saw support from the working class, and when they entered the political arena, things escalated dramatically. The center of demonstrations moved from Beijing to Shanghai, where the working class replaced the students and began massive strikes. As we already mentioned, many Chinese stranded in Russia joined the Red Army for various reasons. Marxism began to take hold with many of the working class in China, and the October Revolution gave them direction. Eventually, in 1921, the Chinese Communist Party was established on July the 1st, and this would feed into one of the worst civil wars in human history by 1927. Alright, so let's summarize everything we've now just learnt. China started World War I as a neutral nation, but much like Japan, sought to use the war to its own advantage. China supported the Entente powers by sending laborers to the Western and Eastern fronts. Many Chinese laborers in the East ended up fighting during the Russian Civil War, and this would bring communism eventually to China. Despite all of these efforts, China was unable to acquire any of its major goals during the Paris Peace Conference, and the warlord era would continue until 1928. We hope you enjoyed this episode on China during World War I, and if you have not already done so, please hit that like and subscribe button, as it would mean a lot to this small channel, and it helps feed these two demon birds 
who scream the entire time I'm filming, as I imagine you can quite hear. This has been the Pacific War Channel. Please join us for Japan during World War One. Welcome back to the Pacific War Channel, the channel where we cover the Asia-Pacific War of 1937 to 1945 and all the events that led up to it. Though we have yet to really touch anything within 1937 to 1945. I am here joined by three guests. Uh, I guess we'll start with a new face, Dana. Yeah, hey guys. Well, I'm uh, from Adventure Allies. You saw the other half of Adventure Allies in the last episode and... Uh, well, I'm Dana, and uh, yes, I've been doing YouTube for, say, about uh, a good six months or so now, and uh, so look forward to having this kind of like political discussion and talk about history and looking forward to it. So thanks for having me on. It's good to have you on. And uh, from the last episode, we have Canada Watch. Hey, it's uh, me, Nick from Canada Watch. Uh, Craig, thank you for having me back on. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Really uh, nice to kind of discuss, you know, political and historical issues. There's uh, certainly some interesting stuff we'll get into about uh, in this episode regarding Canada, which is really cool. Uh, so on Canada Watch, we cover uh, Canadian news, politics, and business. We try to do it in a super unbiased and fair way. And uh, currently, uh, we're doing some really interesting stuff. So if you like uh, Canadian news or politics stuff, check it out. And the uh, traditional guy that's in almost every single podcast at this point, uh, Mr. Economics, Justin. I told you, you can't call me that anymore now that Spooner's here. He's the real expert. But I have to keep uh, that meme going. What's up, everybody? Good to see you again. Glad to have the boys back. And uh, let's get into it. And uh, as usual, for anyone who might be coming from uh, Kings and Generals who's not used to my podcast over on this other channel, my podcast basically follows every YouTube episode I make. So each YouTube episode has a following discussion, which we're doing now. And if you're an audio listener, which would be awesome because can't get enough of you guys, uh, you probably are listening to the episode and then this follows immediately afterwards. And this episode was China during World War I, which took a long time to research. It's a pretty obscure subject. And uh, I mean, the way we've always kind of started this off is I uh, just kind of like to ask, you know, the guests, uh, what did you think of the episode? Because I'm sure all of you had almost no knowledge of this. <laughs> it's pretty niche. And uh, what might, uh, what did you learn off the bat? Uh, start with Dana. So, well, I took notes on the different parts um, with some questions, because uh, honestly, I, I won't lie, I had zero knowledge going into to this episode so i did find it pretty uh eye-opening in terms of um you know china being in a in a sort of weakened state in this period of history and um so um well in terms of my notes i mean they're more in the form of questions to learn more so oh, yeah, i think cool uh, look, yeah so in terms of like the the siege of sing tao um I was just like wondering, you know, maybe you could elaborate on, you know, kind of, I guess, the context of why China was such in a, in a politically slash militarily economically weakened state. Um, 
that would be of interest to me to know a little bit more of how that came to be in that period of time. Yeah, so uh, it, it's kind of ironic because my entire channel has basically been explaining why China was just broken down beginning in kind of the 1800s. What ended up happening, to brutally summarize, uh, they went through two opium wars where Britain, France, and even the United States a little bit kind of were smuggling opium into the country and devastating them as a population so their economy kind of went into ruin the, the population became actually addicted to the substance like it was ruining their society and then on top of that internally they went through a civil war where the casualties were actually more than like world war one it was one of the worst uh, wars in human history and it was followed by 50 other revolts and rebellions and it all kind of crashed into this situation called the Boxer Rebellion in 1900, where China tried to pick itself up and fight back against the uh, Western powers, which uh, was like eight different nations, got crushed again. More rebellions happened. And uh, the dynasty that had been running for almost like a few hundred years at that point collapsed. And China tried to form its first republic immediately at the same time that World War I was like unleashed. And uh, yeah, it was completely fractured politically. No one was really at the helm of all of China. It was uh, almost in a period where we call it the warlord era, where like a lot of these warlords rose up and took pockets of China and they controlled it with their own little armies. So China was in no position to say or do anything against anybody. And uh, I mean, in this episode, you see how much they're getting bullied by Japan. That's kind of the big eye opener. But uh, yeah, to brutally put it in a nutshell, um, China was picked apart and carved up by a lot of other nations for about a hundred, yeah, about a hundred years. That's really interesting. Um, a great point you brought up, uh, Dana, regarding just the, the you know, we live in a, in a time right now where we are seeing, you know, uh, a rising China and a, one competing for global supremacy. So to kind of reflect back on, you know, just maybe over, just over a hundred years ago, uh, how there was such a, a, cr a crazy difference in the state of affairs, which is really eye-opening in many respects. Um, I had a really interesting uh, thought I kind of wanted to dive deeper on, and that is um, the uh, kind of going, the uh, going between Japan and China and that kind of with the siege of Xingzhou and how that all played out. Um, you know, there was an interesting tactic that was used and I thought was worth discussing, which was the, li the uh, listing of demands prior to actions. Uh, you know, this is something that is common uh, in wartime tactics and the kind of pre-war phase of many conflicts. It's used particularly in World War II uh, more recently, but uh, I, I was really surprised that, well, you know, Wan Shikai, you know, got the 13 demands and he accepted the demands. You know, usually you kind of set those demands uh, as the aggressor uh, if you want to call them that, perhaps that's my misinterpretation of history or whatnot. Uh, so no one get offended, please. But it's like, uh, you know, it's a uh, it's interesting to see that play out. And usually you set out a list of demands that is so unreasonable that your 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 eventual uh, opponent cannot meet them. And then if they do meet them, then it's considered a major victory anyway. Yeah. Uh, but it's usually meant to just get a rejection. So you have a pretext for war. Uh, if, you, if you could maybe shed some light on or what you might know about the subject of maybe why those demands were accepted or, you know, the kind of dynamics of those demands between Japan and China and how all that played out. 
Yeah. So originally the 13 demands was actually the 21 demands, which were ri ridiculous. Uh, it, it would have made China an actual protectorate of Japan. Like it, it, it was, no one could actually accept it. It would even, have been a call. Yeah. Even uh, the general of Japan, which is kind of like the elder advisors, most of them thought it was ridiculous. Like there's too many pretty ridiculous demands in there. But uh, the whole reason why Japan kind of slipped that in is because of World War I. Uh, the Western allies who all kind of had their, we'll call it spheres of interest in China, because everyone had their own businesses in different pockets of China, they couldn't do anything or actually come to China's aid. The only one who could have kind of done something was the United States, which was already the enemy of Japan at that point. So they didn't really care so much if they bugged the United States. And uh, they... They placed these demands on Yuan Shikai, and it was kind of an unsaid thing that he should not have publicly shown them. It was supposed to be secret because it was embarrassing for both countries, the, these demands. It was supposed to be a secret message. And it got slipped probably intentionally to the public. They freaked out. Then China cut it down to the 13 demands, taking out kind of the worst demands that were there to alleviate Yuan Shikai's position so that he would actually sign it. And like you asked, why would he possibly sign such a horrible thing? He wasn't really firmly in charge of China. It was still fractured. He had only come into power through very bad ways, mind you. He's not beloved, we'll say that. And um, it was seen as uh, the only way to thwart even worse conditions. Because if he didn't sign them, it's like you said, it could have been a precursor. Maybe not for full-scale war, but what Japan particularly liked to do to China was have unofficial wars, you would call it, where they would just come, occupy territories, and say that they're protecting the interests of Japanese civilians or something there. One of the, thing, one of the things I found uh, interesting about the, the 13 demands um, was that the, the U.S. sort of took position once the, the demands became public, and... You know, I'm sort of I was sort of curious as to like, well, why would they have a stance on that in terms of like, why not let them do their own thing and, and why they they chose to like not officially recognize certain aspects of the demands? Yeah, so America famously was the only country when all the countries began carving up China, literally like imperialistic, uh, they would take spheres of influence, rename stuff and completely take over the business and even tax citizens there, France, Britain, Germany, all the, all the countries. The United States was late to the party. And what they did was something called the open door policy. And basically it just meant that everybody could do business with China, but on equal terms which was no better for China, mind you. I mean, I guess it was a little bit better than actually being carved up. But the United States was always adamant about having free trade and allowing everyone to be on kind of like an equal footing going into whatever investments they're going to do with the Chinese. Not equal for the Chinese, mind you. And uh, what Japan's 21 demands did was pretty much step all over the open door policy. And it was... Uh, it's one of those big things, actually, that pissed off the United States so much it kind of leads to the Pacific War later. Wow. But what uh, do you think the U.S. was kind of doing it as sort of a backdoor way to keep uh, to keep Japan uh, from getting too much ground as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because they, they were already kind of going head to head. And it seems like the U.S. didn't want to start a direct conflict, but sort of wanted to, you know, kind of get the reins on Japan and 
keep them from expanding too rapidly or uh, going head to head with somebody else uh, for no reason. Yeah, it's sometimes hard to think about because when you consider the United States at, at that point in time, they're not the colossal like Goliath that they are today. And they did have to kind of play footsie when they did any of these diplomatic things like pissing off Japan was actually a huge threat to the United States because they had the Philippines and the Philippines were just, you know, the in the back door of Japan. Japan could have invaded the Philippines at any moment and the United States probably couldn't really do anything about it. So, yeah, they had an awkward relationship right after the Boxer Rebellion about. Yeah, but it still seems like they're trying to sort of I'm not saying sway everything in a direction that would necessarily like directly benefit them, but you know, they seem to be kind of that little angel whispering in the ear of certain people at certain times, you know, like (laughs) example, when you get into the end of the episode, they're the ones that kind of nudge China to, uh, to declare war on Germany and, you know, being the, the, the fractured state that China was in, that was a risky move regardless might've been the right one, but you know, even myself, uh, there are probably a lot of arguments as to kind of why the United States gave that nudge. But one of the biggest reasons is to mess with Japan because whoever gets involved in the war gets technically invited to the table at the peace conference at the end, which China did get invited to, but they got really screwed over during. And the United States probably just wanted to say, hey, look, we're doing this. We're going to be at the peace conference. It's in your best interest. Like, get involved you'll probably get something at the end and germany isn't in a position to really attack you right now Mm. i mean actually help them get some debt off of uh they didn't have to pay austro-hungary anymore they didn't have to pay germany off anymore because of the declaration of war yeah well that was a big one because when we talked about the boxer rebellion we did our episode on them i remember that those uh, reparations or whatever you'd want to call them that they had to pay were actually pretty freaking hefty China paid reparations for the Boxer Rebellion until 1945. I think. Jesus. Yeah, it's, uh, and it's an unbelievable, it's an unrealistic amount of money. It's, it's that, 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 That's what we went over in the episode. And the fact that even if they managed to get away from some of it is kind of a victory from them just in that sense. Oh, yeah. I, I think it really paid off to uh, declare war. Yeah. Oh, so uh, any other questions? Is there a... I didn't expect these kinds of questions are interesting. Yeah. Well, I, I'm wondering if one of the things like that, the the talk of Japan is sort of like, you know, having me reflect on is like the fact that like the U.S. actually considered like Japan so heavily in their in their decisions. And, you know, as to parallel to today, whereas, you know, Japan is, a, is more like way obviously more pacifist uh which for understandable reasons um and so i am get i we all know what led to japan taking on a more pacifist uh yeah. you know a way of being but like maybe like i i'd be interested to know about their culture what what how their leadership was and, and what their sort of military stance was at that point that that actually intimidated the u.s to the point where like you know they were at the, the they were on the main uh you know uh, they were the big dogs in the pacific basically yeah what kind of happened was there was a war between russia and japan in 1904 to 1905 called the russo-japanese war and japan like shocked the entire world they 
not only defeated the Russians, uh, Navy-wise and on the land, mind you, but Russia ended up sending a second fleet after it lost its first one to Japan and then had that entire fleet destroyed. So it was like the first time in history that a non-white nation like just straight up punched one of the big powers. It shocked the entire world. Like everyone couldn't believe it. And um, both nations were financially bankrupt, still fighting the war. So they wanted to look for a way out. So what you usually do is you find like a, a neutral third party to do a negotiation for you. They chose uh, Theodore Roosevelt of the United States, good friend of Japan at the time. They thought, oh, this guy was saying good things about Japan. He was one of the few people in the world who thought Japan might have a chance against Russia. So they chose him. When Roosevelt came to the table to help mediate the negotiations between the two countries, Roosevelt immediately was kind of like talking to his advisors and they realized that Japan was a huge threat to the United States interests, whether it be in China or just in the Pacific, because the United States had a quasi colonies in the Pacific and stuff. And Japan had a huge Navy that the United States probably couldn't do anything about at that point, even, even a world war one, I, I don't think they could touch them. So Roosevelt basically not that he screwed over Japan on purpose, but he made the negotiations go in a certain way where Japan didn't come out too great after the war. And the entire population of Japan basically demonized the United States ever since. And they pretty much thought Roosevelt was the devil and that he had stolen their victory from them because they didn't get any reparation payments for the war. So all of their boys that went off to the war to die, there was no money coming in to like cover the costs. There was a huge economic collapse because of it and all this stuff. But uh, after that, the United States basically made its entire military program to thwart Japan in case Japan ever went to war with them. And they designed a lot of plans like um, there's a plan called uh, War Plan Orange. If Japan goes to war with the United States, how are they going to defend the Philippines and how are they going to defeat the, uh, the island nation of Japan? And it would involve actually building the Navy as they would fight and all sorts of stuff like that. So you have to always remember the United States, is, it's, it wasn't the Goliath it was that it is today. And um, they were just, just starting to build the Pacific fleet. And I guess you got to play with the chips you got. So for the most part, when the United States was considering who's the biggest threats to them, Japan might've been the, yeah, I'd say it was, Japan was the number one threat to them for quite a while since about, 1904. Wow, that's saying something. Yeah, it's not like it's Germany. Like uh, the United States, this is a hilarious story. The United States um, made plans and they color, cord color coded them. So War Plan Black was if Germany started a war, which would have been World War One, and tried to attack the Caribbean islands that France owned that were really, really close to the United States, what the United States would do to repel them. And then the United States had really, really hilarious plans. Like what if they went to war with Britain in 1910? Well, they'd have to invade Canada. So they had war plan like Crimson for Canada, war plan, uh, I think it was Ruby for India, Emerald for Ireland, everybody that the British had. And they had war plans for like Cuba and every single nation you can even think of. And uh, yeah, but war plan Orange was the most important. It was if Japan went to war with them because the United States had so much money invested in China and they had, uh, so many colonies in the Pacific that would have easily fallen to the Japanese and did in 1941. Speaking of the, um, the Chinese economic element, uh, I found this part of the episode super, super interesting. So I wanted to get your thoughts on it and kind of discuss it. 
Um, the export. So from what I understand in the episode, there's a bit in the early part of the war, a entente, a detente, where it's like, okay, we're not going to do combat, a combat role. But they certainly use their manpower to export their economic force, which is their workforce, uh, to all parts of the world. Uh, and in order to kind of get a better sense of things. And that in, in war is a highly underrated aspect. Uh, you know, the economic machine uh, that, you know, can build infrastructure and all sorts, you know, they've been taking trenches and they're doing all sorts of cool stuff. Uh, and I thought what was really interesting is the po- point that was brought up about how in China itself, they saw this as a huge asset, not only to assist in the effort to a non-combat role, but also to gather new technical skills that they could then bring back to their homeland, not just economically in the form of money in terms of amounts received, but in in terms of the kind of skills they would learn from in best practices and then be able to bring it back to the homeland and they get, uh, you know, a technological benefit later on. Uh, what are your thoughts on on that strategy and, and you know, your general uh, sort of thought about how they did this in the war and its impact? I, when I had to start this venture, because this is like a, it's a World War One series. When I started, I said to myself, okay, I want to do Japan World War One because Japan um, might be shocking to hear. Japan was probably the greatest victor of World War One because they put the least amount of effort in and got the best results after the United States who kind of switched. The United States basically turned over the world economically and became the powerhouse where it, the economy went from London to New York after World War One. Then I'm like, okay, I want to do China, obviously, because uh, Pacific War Child been doing China and Japan. And I also did some other things like Tsing Sao and the German Raiders. I didn't know myself really what China did in World War One, because when you ever talk about World War One, one of the first things you uh, hear when it comes to Asia, so China was neutral. So you just think, okay, they did nothing. Uh, they just sat by idly. That's you know what I would have thought too. When I heard about the Chinese labor uh, labor force, I'm like, okay, well, that's interesting. This is something to really look into in the episode. And then that ended up being, as you can see, like 80% of the episode, because it's it's incredible. Like, you never think about it. All the trenches, all like repairing the tanks, working in the factories in France and England, all that. It actually was a lot of foreign Chinese workers who came over amongst other uh, different groups. Like there was also Vietnamese, Thai, and all sorts of other people. But the amount of the numbers of Chinese that went over is absolutely incredible. And then when you look at the Russian front in the east, it's even crazier because the Chinese are just like flooding into Russia and there's no regulation at all. It became such a clusterfuck. But uh, for China, you're like, okay, what do you get out of this except for the money, Uh, the technical skills? So if you have people working in factories, they're working in munition factories. They know how to make the shells that go in the ships or in any of the artillery pieces. They know how to repair tanks, the gears, the motors and everything. So for the Chinese, uh, the government was actually telling most of their brightest, please go over. They're getting students and flooding, particularly in France, like all these students go over, learn everything you can, go into the universities, become translators, do whatever you got to do and to bring it back to China to rebuild the country. And China was so humiliated after like almost 100 years of just being completely destroyed by everybody that they wanted to build up. They wanted to modernize more. And World War One was like this kind of gleaming opportunity where they got a chance to really do that ironically when world war one ended and they got shafted so much at the peace table the country that came to their aid to really help them modernize after was germany they became best friends that is interesting interesting. 
I, I couldn't help uh, uh, but ask this question, you know, being the Canada watch flag in the back here. Um, can the Canadian element in all this, uh, which with the Chinese uh, workers kind of stealthily coming through Canada oh, yeah. in top secret uh, to uh, get across so they can uh, join the war front. Uh, if you could maybe open up some details about that, your thoughts, your comments uh, about uh, that element of society, particularly because at that time, obviously the use and the presence of the Chinese workforce in Canada was, shall we say, quite controversial. So uh, I thought it'd be nice to open up on that element to kind of look at the China Canada element in World War One. Yeah, because they had the uh, above all else, they had the Chinese head tax. So if you think about it, every single Chinese who entered into Vancouver to get on that train would have had to pay technically that head tax amount and it would have been astronomical the amount of numbers and then they went all the way through the country to Montreal it, it honestly this was like a crazy covert ops operation they were shoved I think I say in the episode they were shoved in these carts and not not allowed to get off for very good reason uh like you've kind of already alluded to the United States on the um, California coast and places like British Columbia, there's a lot of laws that were put into place in like the 1880s to stop Chinese workers from bringing their families over at first. And then it turned into not allowing them to come into the country because they would come here to work on the railroads. But needless to say, um, the railroad workers who were Canadian or American didn't like that because they worked for cheaper. They were really enticed to work mind you better conditions for them over here than where they were and they kind of took over and uh yeah so the labor unions uh particularly in vancouver got really bad uh, a lot of chinese were running out of town and stuff so world war one's coming right after that and there's still some exclusionary acts like um uh in the 1920s japan will have something called the gentleman's agreement where the government of Japan will just unofficially stop Japanese from kind of flooding into Canada and the United States. And for China, it was just openly racist. Uh, if you came, uh, it depends on what year it is, but if you came over, you weren't allowed to bring your family. You had to pay a tax to be allowed to come in and you were treated like dirt. So it was, uh, it was interesting to do that little story on how the British government tried to figure out a way to get all these Chinese to the, uh, the Western Front and you kind of think, oh, wouldn't they just go by ship all the way around the Cape of Africa and come up? But the German U-boats were such a threat that it was more feasible to actually go through, through the Pacific, and then go over Canada. It was a lot safer. Wow. Yeah, and uh, the Japanese were the ones protecting the convoys, ironically. It's not often you hear uh, Canadians strongly protecting their borders against illegal workers, you know? <laughs> yeah. oh, that's a very interesting stuff um uh what about um just another just random thought uh the presence of these the, the russia chinese element that you're talking about at the border uh i was surprised to hear that there were chinese bolshevik army or unit at some point uh, like that was crazy i thought that was uh, a really interesting take and they were kind of like assigned the more uh shall we say, uh, controversial tasks of, uh, of war. So uh, what was that like? And uh, how did that all come to be? It's, uh, it's a crazier story than I could even really touch upon. I, 
I even in the next episode, which is Japan during World War One, I, I fall into this kind of hole where there's a um, entire other venture that happens after World War One, technically at the end of it, called the Siberian Intervention. It's it's the Russian Civil War gets unleashed, and all the nations, like all the great powers, basically send these troops into Siberia to try and quell the Red Army. So they're trying to help the White Army to destroy them, and China, ironically, China sends. A kind of very small group of like 2,000 something soldiers to fight the Red Army, like alongside everyone else. But because of the worker corps, uh, China had hundreds of thousands of people that were in Russia who were not being regulated and they basically were just left to do nothing. And they didn't know how to get home, they didn't know what to do. They don't, a lot of them don't speak Russian, they don't know where they are. So when they see like there's this group of these Bolsheviks and they're like saying, oh, we're gonna feed you and you're gonna join the army, it's gonna be great. We're gonna do this whole thing. We're gonna turn the world communist, blah, blah, blah. A lot of them are like, if I do this, maybe I'll get home at some point. <laughs> so so a lot of them join the Red Army and uh, fight in every single, yeah, just about every single front that the Red Army fights in, they're there. There's a really famous battle that happens when Romania attacks the uh, the Soviet, well, the emerging Soviet Union and it's a Chinese division led by a really famous Chinese commander called Ren Fuxian. And he fights one of um, He's leading a Red Army battalion, and he ends up fighting against one of the generals in the white Russian army alongside uh, some Romanians and stuff. And it's this crazy battle. He ends up getting killed. And he's technically the first Chinese Bolshevik because he had joined the party before World War One, I, I think, like in... 1908 or something it's a crazy story i couldn't get into in the episode but anyways so yeah the red army had a ton of these chinese working for them and ironically the fact that they couldn't speak russian was such a benefit because you they could lead them anywhere to do anything and because they didn't care about where they were they didn't know anybody there they don't speak russian they made for excellent executioners so they would just use them to execute people and they use them as shock troops in places uh even during like places in Leningrad there would be Chinese troops and uh, it was a huge propaganda piece um, against the Bolsheviks even years after all this was kind of like done with um, I remember hearing something once that Trotsky was angered because a bunch of people would say that the only reason why the Bolsheviks were able to win the civil war was because of a, a bunch of foreigners that came in like the Chinese and some others and he was pretty angry to hear that because it took away from like the Russian cause I guess you'd say do you think uh, do you think in part China was trying to snuggle up to Russia a little bit because they knew Japan still somewhat feared them in a way? You know, it's, we've talked a lot about Russia being the big sleeping bear in that time period. And now with the World War kicking up, they're they're starting to wake up. So maybe China was trying to be buddy buddy to sort of have, uh, you know, the good old look at my friend here. Uh, if Japan decided to get feisty, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Russia yeah. is the number one enemy of Japan. Even during the Pacific War, it's hard to think about when you consider that Japan was at war with like the United States is always the main person that, you know, kind of puts the nail in the coffin. The entire time, the actual threat, the number one target has always been Russia for Japan, particularly communism. Japan is the most anti-communist country that's ever existed in the world. Mm. It's pretty crazy too. The lengths yeah. that they went, yeah. One of the things that I was wondering about, like when it comes to the the Chinese labor corps in the West versus like the East, it seems like in the West, 
you know the these chinese people that are you know like we said they're basically putting cattle cars heavily monitored heavily controlled yeah. uh you know you go from point a to point b where and so strictly non-combat roles and then they end up in the east they end up in in russia and some like how do they lose control so bad that they end up having these like red armies spring up and you have like not only are they participating participating in combat roles they're taking some of the more extreme combat roles of of any war and just to kind of contrast the you know what 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 was so different in and where they got like was it the geographic location was it the the uh, the countries that were monitoring the the transporting of these people what went wrong a lot of things so uh to, to list the big ones uh because this is actually very new information no one really talks about this uh there's a very famous youtube channel if any of you guys know called the great war channel that covered world war one week to week uh for seven years and the narrator did one episode that touched upon this for i think three minutes and he himself said that like some audience member told him about this and he didn't even know the information I can say the same thing. I read a single article that kind of went into this. You can get all the information about every single Chinese unit on the Western front, and it's all done beautifully. You can even hear about like the ones that stayed in France and built the Chinese communities there. But when it comes to the East, it's so bizarre. And it seems to be because the actual governments of Britain and France controlled all the Chinese that went over the Western front. But when it came to Russia, Russia was so completely completely in chaos and such a mess that they just allowed some private companies to just send them over. And these private companies were probably a bunch of corrupt officials. Like, I think I named one company called the Yusheng company or something. They seem to be like one of the big ones and there's zero regulation. So they would send Chinese wherever in Russia without even proper retire, mind you, like a lot of them show up to Siberia. They're like not dressed for it and they would die. And whoever would get the Chinese uh, maybe they didn't even speak the language they, like they didn't have supervisors they had there's no policies or regulations whereas on the western front like they were actually like you said kind of like pushed on these cattle cars and they were they're put in line I mean it was terrible conditions there was racism but at least there was some semblance of control and organization whereas in in Russia they were sent to all these different countries in the east and they were sent to do really bizarre jobs at really sucked i couldn't go into it but the siberian railway wasn't really completely constructed so these chinese were like sent to go do the railway in like inhumane places where you couldn't even cut down trees to survive <laughs> and a lot of them died it's horrible and then the thing that came up the most in the article i read was when they were done work whoever was the supervisor would just leave so a ton of these chinese would have no idea where they were they didn't know what to do and they had no idea how to get home so hell? yeah it's it's hilarious so basically the red army really kind of clued in when they saw this and they're like oh my god look at all these people that we can just grab to our cause white army really dropped the ball on that one because they would have had quite a force maybe a hundred thousand i think there was an estimate that like a hundred thousand chinese fought for the red army during the civil war that's pretty crazy 
if, if, if I mean, now we're getting into heavy speculation, but if that flipped over to the other side, do you think it goes differently? Hmm. Uh, that's a tough one. Maybe it's, it's really, it's, it's hard to say because it wasn't a normal war. It's, it's not like, it's not like they were fighting guerrillas. Uh, the red army wasn't necessarily just a guerrilla army or anything like that, but the city centers were so strongly controlled by them. It, it, yeah, it seems like the civil war was going to happen one way or another. It was going to the red army is going to win. Yeah, one way or another. The forces that all the other nations sent in, which was a ton, like Japan sent a shit ton of people into Siberia to just take over territory secretly, and they couldn't do it. Like What's we said, a, big sleeping bear. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure how we're doing on time here, but I do want to ask one more thing. Um, sure. Let's talk about the, uh, we kind of touched on it a bit, bit before, but this is stuff that's really interesting, you know, from a political element, which is the post-war conference. Obviously, yeah. China d- does not get their way in the slightest. Um, and this leads to outrage nationally uh, in their own country led by the students, student demonstrations uh, that really sparked a renewed sense of Chinese nationalism that ended up bleeding into the working class, which then took over when it went from Shanghai to Beijing. And it was, uh, if I'm understanding that correctly. Uh, And then there was the influence of Marxism a bit in there as well that kind of uh, uh, really set the tone for later events. Um, Maybe if you could talk a bit about uh, the dynamics behind that, and uh you know how maybe set the tone for future events in history it has a name it's called the may 4th movement it's one of the biggest events in chinese history and a lot of audience members after this episode asked me can you please do a single episode on it and i do plan to the thing is the may 4th uh movement happens directly after world war one in 1919 about so i kind of keenly touched a little bit in the episode i think i gave it like 30 seconds or something I'm going to have a full episode on it because it's super complicated. Like you said, it starts off as students and a lot of them had gone overseas over to France to become translators for the war, but they had gone to the universities. They learned so much ideology from the West, like about democracy, about all the great historical events, everything in the day and how to really build the country. So when they came back to China, this ideology really sparked a lot and they started this protest then the, the workers got involved because they were unhappy and the Marxists got involved because a bunch of the people that were fighting the Red Army, these Chinese, eventually came home and they brought in the ideology of Marxism. So it became the perfect storm. It's uh, if you were talking to like a CCP official, they'd say it's like it's one of the great moments, you know, for, for the movement uh, to start the Communist uh, Party, which will get uh, founded in 1921, if I'm not mistaken. 21 you said yeah i did take note and you said the the civil war was 1927 oh yeah yeah for the uh, the chinese civil war yeah it, well i i just i took note of marxism taking root in development of ccp in july 1st yeah. 2019 uh, 1921 because the period the period right after world war one is absolutely insane in china you have a it's called the warlord era but during the warlord era, uh, Chiang Kai-shek, which is the um, generalissimo, the national figure who will be in the Pacific War, he basically takes control of a large part of China, but he is the most adamantly anti-communist guy. He, he's the counter to Mao Zedong. And Mao Zedong, uh, will, he'll, get, he'll rise up later uh, in 1921, mind you, but 
the founding of the Communist Party, it's really low key, it's slow, but the workers eventually, they get a lot of numbers, they get a lot of numbers, they start to build an army, which is their own red army, which is built off the Bolsheviks uh, from, from Russia. They're using the same model. They fight Chiang Kai-shek's forces. They get beaten really, really, really bad. They run for their lives. They hide in a pocket and then they start educating themselves. And eventually during World War II, it's China isn't just facing the Japanese or facing the communists within their own country. And then eventually the communists will win. But it all has roots right now in World War I with the May 4 movement, uh, particularly. It's a very complicated history. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and this is all for a country that wanted to remain neutral or didn't even want to take part in this war because of how fractured they were. Well, they wanted to take, you know, they kind of wanted to take part. It's just they couldn't. Uh, Yuan, Yuan Shukai immediately, I think I say it a little bit in the episode, he tried to offer 50,000 troops to take Tsing Sao from the, like to get rid of the Germans. But it's it's Japan secretly saying that they're not allowed to do that because Japan does not want China to be big. Japan's whole being at this point is to be the power in Asia and they want China to be a protectorate. That's like basically that's been their destiny since uh, the Meiji Restoration. And they're really they have a strong stronghold on Britain because Britain's the ally to Japan and Japan's like, hey, yo, you want us to come over and help you in this world war because they do. Well, tell China to back off. That's what's kind of happening. Yeah. And uh, I definitely have to get to this point in the episode because the audience is really keen on me just saying their comments and their questions. So I have a few that I found for this episode, although this episode did not nearly do as well as the other uh, World War One episodes. It's, it's a bit slower. I'm a little bit sad about that. I don't know. I hope it picks up at some point. But uh, the first question I have, which is the same question I get every every episode I do, is what movies did you uh, use for the clips in this episode? Uh, there's one main one that I used the hell out of that has nothing to do with World War One, which is ironic. It's uh, 1911 with Jackie Chan. So it's actually uh, it's the Xinhai Revolution where China forms its first republic. But there's like Yuan Shikai fighting the resistance in China and Jackie Chan's part of the resistance. And I wanted some kind of like feeling of a war going on because China technically doesn't get to fight other than in Siberia a little bit. So I just wanted a little bit of invigoration. So I used clips from that. Uh, other than that, I used um, actual footage of the Siberian intervention, which was raw, which shows a lot of funny stuff, like people who don't know they're being filmed doing silly things like I have this, there's this one clip, I didn't put it in, uh, in the next episode, there's 10 Japanese generals trying to figure out how to smoke cigars, and they aren't cutting them right, and it's, it's like <laughs> 10 minutes of them trying to figure out how to smoke cigars, it's really funny. Oh my god. Yeah, and uh, footage for this, uh, for the uh, Chinese Labor Corps was from a British documentary made a long, long, long time ago. I got another question, uh, when will you make a Chinese warlord era video that era is hella confusing it's coming right after this one to the audience member who I know who it is uh he talked to me after because he's researching it himself uh it's coming maybe it won't be the immediate episode after this one but uh it's definitely going to be at minimum a three-part series really soon next question or comments I have let me look at my notes great stuff Many don't believe World War One was truly a global war, but it absolutely was. Love the World War One content. Keep it coming. 
And if you ever like to collaborate on a World War One video in the future, let me know. Yeah, sure. I love collaboration. I uh, early on in my YouTube career, I collaborated with this one guy who really, really grew. And we made this video. Um, it was a movie review of The Last of the Mohican. I don't know if you guys saw that one. And uh, we got a lot of views for that video. It did really well. I did the Quebecois perspective on it because there's, uh, you know, it's uh, the founding of Quebec in there too. And a lot of people liked it. Uh, sorry, I'm going to read more questions. There's a few more. Happy Thanksgiving. Great video. I'm thankful for the channel. Oh, uh, sorry. Okay, so this guy, I uh, just wanted to make a note. This guy, my statistics said he was the top commentator in my whole channel and he received the most hearts from me. He knows who he is. Very good guy. Another one was a random comment uh, that just states Japan definitely has a warrior spirit. <laughs> yeah, sure. And uh, the last one is I want to pet your bird. Or yeah, I hope it's my actual parrot. No, you don't. No, <laughs> sir, you do not. That is a very, <laughs> very mean bird. Okay. Run, run quickly. Little known fact, you don't get to see some of the comments that come up because they just get flagged by YouTube. But uh, I get a lot of sexual advances on this channel. <laughs> nice. <laughs> like a lot. It's been interesting to read through those. What, what, what? Yeah, I, I don't even know what to say to that. You know, that's the purpose of a history channel, Craig's. Uh, hey, you, you've been in a few videos beside me, Justin. I don't know. There, there's been a few comments about you too. Oh, and and you haven't been kind enough to share them. Oh dear. YouTube's I, a new I, Tinder. I, what is this? Uh, I had no idea. Yeah, the, this is actually a secret dating show for all of you who know. Uh, Canada Watch is currently uh, on the market. All right. I don't know what this yeah. is, but and half anybody, of adventure it's allies hot. as well. <laughs> Any, anybody who wants for a hundred bucks, I can uh, I can leak a cell phone number. No problem. Oh. <laughs> Great time to say. You only talked a little bit at the beginning about your YouTube channels, but I want to give you this opportunity to like tell the audience a little bit more. Uh, we'll start with Canada Watch. You know, like what have you been covering in the last week or two? Just to say to the audience to give them an idea. Sure. Well, uh, we are covering a few things. One is uh, out of British Columbia. Uh, it is a really difficult state of affairs right now. Uh, they are facing major flooding, major catastrophe in the billions of dollars. Uh, we're talking about food shortages. We're talking about people panicking, uh, supply chain issues, and they have a series of floods that uh, may have long-term ramifications for that area. So we're covering that. Uh, we're also covering uh, the inflation situation, very precarious for many Canadians. One of the things we really talked about in the last episode was uh, shrinkflation, which is something that uh, people are uh, maybe not so familiar with, which is the idea of that you keep, you keep the same price for a product in order to honor supplier contracts, but you offer less of that product in the same thing. For example, a Snickers bar, instead of being 49 grams, might be 42 grams. And uh, if you actually carefully look at many items in grocery stores and in general supply chain, you might notice that you might get the same price, but maybe not the same quantity. So that is something that is uh, developing uh, in the supply chain. And the last one we did is an introduction to a uh, topic we're doing, which is we're going to be covering uh, the evolution of financial markets in Canada, which includes the evolution of cryptocurrency uh, in Canada, which has regulation here, which many people are not aware of. And I'm quickly informing myself on 
And uh, just so you have an idea of kind of fact that we dropped in the last episode, the global cryptocurrency market right now is $2.7 trillion USD. And the Toronto Stock Exchange, all equities listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange is worth just a bit over $3 trillion. So it is growing quickly and becoming choo, choo. a player in finance. So yep. uh, we're covering that and uh, trying to uh, give it a best link. Parliament's back. It's really charged right now. A lot of partisanship. So we're trying to stay out of that. But we're going to uh, try to cover that as best we can. And adventure yeah. allies. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, uh, obviously, Nick, you know, I'm a huge fan of Canada Watch. I very much look forward to hearing all about the inflation situation uh, how crypto factors into that, as well as, uh, you know, the latest uh, coming from the House of Commons. Super passionate about that. On Adventure Allies, um, Jason and I have been playing a, a few games that we're having. Well, first of all, we're having a great time with Red Dead Redemption 2. Uh, we've been playing that for, yeah, about probably about a month now or so, but it's such a, a long story. There's always you know, random encounters to, to experience. So we're uh, turning some of those into shorts as well. Uh, we had a recent success. Uh, one of our shorts got up to 17,000 views. So that was super exciting. Um, we're playing Disco Elysium, which is uh, sort of like a role-playing game where you play like an amnesiac uh, cop who wakes up uh, from a night of drinking, doesn't remember he's a cop and you just have to start doing a murder investigation so we're having a lot of fun with that and we're doing a certain you know kind of horror games survival games uh, so like amnesia resident evil so we we're adding playthroughs uh really like uh very quickly actually our channel's filling up with games we've played and uh so there's something for everyone um and we just got to 75 subs so we're enjoying a you know a, a, a good growth i'm ha happy with that and uh you know uh come hang out and uh just chill and hang out with the boys and uh that's that's adventure allies so k and g guys and my regular old folks from the pacific war channel if you can go over to their youtube channels and please hit that subscribe button and like and watch some of their videos it would be greatly appreciated Oh, and don't forget that his buddy Tupa Loops has a game review channel and it is underappreciated. The guy's a meme lord. Please go watch some of them. You will not be disappointed. Very, Absolutely. very good. If I can just plug it, I'm I'm his number one Tupa Loops fan and I and I'm trying to get we're we're all trying to get him back on the Tupa Loops train. So if he does watch sure. this, you gotta get to the next review. Uh we were supporting you and uh yeah, it's just uh, expertly done, like meme curation, uh, great content, great reviews, and uh, and they're just such good products at the end of the day. And I just rave on and on about uh, each review, watch them multiple times. And uh, so Tupaloops, we are waiting for the next Tupaloops review. I love the Overwatch one the best. <laughs> oh my god, oh, I love that one. Gold. Absolutely it's gold. Is it on par with KSI's? I haven't seen that one. Yet. Oh, he he did it justice. He did it justice. <laughs> he hit every single character, and it, it's so good. It's great. I'll Honestly, go audience members, it. go check Overwatch by Tupa Loops, please. As a matter of fact, all those three channels, I I've I've dipped into all three of them. Canada Watch is great. If you're into the more serious topics and want some really informed stuff, 
again without uh, without trying to sling any bias on it very very cut down the middle and uh you know it's uh it's a lot of fun to to dip into there and get into some more serious topics too so check these guys out all of them yeah uh, you know statistically my channel's like mostly american uh after that's filipino and stuff but uh i think i have like a five percent canadian fan base come on show some love to your fellow canadians go go check out canada watch absolutely oh that's great right. appreciate that and uh before we wrap up uh for your american fan base uh you'll know that coming soon uh to canada watch will be a a series we're going to work on which is uh the growing uh, dichotomy and relationship between Canada, the United States, and the political elements involved, and uh, whether certain certain narratives that hold true in both countries are actually the case, or maybe not. Stay tuned. Find out. All right, folks. So, heard it here. <laughs> yeah. This has been the uh, Pacific War Channel podcast, which I have to make sure I put the channel in that whole title now, since I have another podcast, which is called The Pacific War. It's confusing everybody. Over and out.